Let me come home with you. Is there room for one more? Can I come home with you? Let me come home with you. There's room for one more. Welcome to Book Theory! Because if you have one moderately popular indie smash game in your franchise, chances are you also have yourself a 10 installment book deal. That's barely an exaggeration. Bendy and the Ink Machine? 3. With more promised on the way. Hello Neighbor? 6. Heck, it's a surprise that Baldi's Basics doesn't have an entire trilogy dedicated to the horrific backstory of the Jump Rope Girl. No joke, at this point in my life, I'm reading more video games than I'm playing. But of course today, we're not talking about any of those other franchises. We're talking about the Grandpappy. The one that paved the way for all those who would dare to follow in its footsteps. Five Nights at Freddy's and its eight books. As well as its two graphic novel reimaginings of the first two books. But here's the best part here, friends. True to this franchise, the books were supposed to end at Fazbear Frights number five. We're currently at Fazbear Frights number three. The end was in sight. That was gonna be it. That was the end of the line. Mystery over. But oh, oh no, my friends. Of course not. Now, there are two more final installments announced. Just like every game after FNAF 3. I used to joke that the fan was the scariest part of this franchise. Oh no, not anymore, dear theorists. Now, it's multi-platform merchandising. <sighs> so Fazbear Frights number 3, titled 135 a.m. just came out, and oh boy, there is a lot to talk about with this one. If you'll remember, Scott has made it pretty darn clear that this new book series is meant to help us solve the mysteries from the past, and that the stories are, as they say in every book's official description, pulled from all different corners of the FNAF lore. But unlike the past two Fazbear Frights books, where the connections have been a bit uh, looser, I suppose is the best way to describe a time-traveling ball pit that leads to a scene of some 1985 pizzeria murders, the stories contained in this one, in 1.35 a.m., all feel very strongly connected to, well, like I just said, every corner of the FNAF canon. The stories here are starting to show how they're connected to not only each other, but also how they're connected to the original book trilogy, and yes, how they're even connected to the games, creating this elaborate web of complicated animatronic death. But more than anything else, these books are starting to confirm things for us. Theories and suspicions that we've had for the better part of the last five years, which, you know, is kind of nice to receive some level of validation. Like I said, it is a lot to cover, and so I'm going to cover this one like I've covered the last two books. Today's episode is going to be dedicated to a general overview of the stories, spotlighting some of the most important details for theory crafting, and explaining what I think this new batch of stories is trying to tell us about the series' mysteries, and then the next video we're going to be doing a deep dive into probably the biggest mystery of all three books so far, FNAF's newest killer animatronic, The Stitch Rave. This guy is actually really interesting, and his story is starting to weave through most 
most of the nine other small stories that we've covered in these other books, and what he means might actually have some severe implications for not just the original trilogy of novels, but also the future of the games. But for today, let's start with our title story, 1.35am. This one is pretty straightforward. Delilah is a young woman with a tragic backstory. Her parents both died when she was 11, at which point she was bounced around and abused, sadly, in the foster care system for years. Eventually, she finds a stable home and happiness with a man named Richard. They get married, and Delilah excitedly looks forward to finally having a child of her own so she can finally complete the family that she never had. Everything is going great in her life until Richard divorces her. Now she's alone and sadder than ever. And then she dies, trapped in a ventilation shaft after being tortured by the embodiment of the child that she never had. Children's entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, so I may have skipped a few steps there, but it's roughly the idea. One day, Delilah finds an animatronic doll named Ella at a garage sale. A doll that reminds her of the child that she always dreamed of having. Quote, with brown curly hair, big dark eyes, and plump pink cheeks, the doll looked almost exactly like the baby Delilah had envisioned having someday with Richard. She'd been sure that she was going to be a mother, so sure that she'd named the baby before the baby was even conceived. Her name would be Emma. Delilah reached for the tag that hung on the doll's wrist. My name is Ella. Ella so close to Emma. Delilah felt an odd tingle slither through her body, end quote. She buys the doll, in part because it reminds her of her almost never child, and because it has a built-in alarm clock. Emotionally scarring with a side of functionality, just the way I like it. Anyway, she sets the alarm inside of Ella for 1.35pm to help wake her up for her shift at work. But the alarm doesn't go off, and just like that, Delilah gets her first taste of parental disappointment. So she does what any good parent would do in that situation, immediately hurls her would-be child into the near dumpster. Yikes, Delilah. Maybe it's better that you and Richard didn't have that kid after all. Anyway, that night, she's awoken at 1.35 a.m. by Ella. Delilah assumes that she accidentally set the alarm for a.m. rather than p.m., which reminds me of the time I didn't bother to set the clock right on my Tamagotchi and was forced to scoop his poop every day at four in the morning. I can't imagine why he died. Certainly not my fault. Anyway, she tries to find the trashed Ella doll, but can't, and from that point forward is slowly driven insane by the doll waking her up every morning at 1.35. I mean, you know, 1.35 is still early enough at night to get a decent night's sleep. It's not a 3 a.m. challenge or anything like that, but whatever. Yeah, knowing that she'll never feel safe again, she climbs into a ventilation shaft in a building under construction and dies. Quote from the book, She'd never wanted things, she wanted love. Oof, it is a heartbreaker, man. The stories in these books so far have been pretty sad, but this one is just tragic. In fact, all three stories from this particular book are just rough. Now, this story has two really important details in it. Details that seem to make Delilah's horrific struggle a strange nexus point for both the original book canon as well as the games. So let's start with the books first. In 1.35am, the Ella doll is described as a, quote, helper doll manufactured by Fazbear Entertainment. Continuing forward with that quote, the booklet had a list of what Ella was designed for. She could keep time and serve as an alarm clock, manage appointments, keep track of lists, take photos, read stories, sing songs, and even serve drinks. Serve drinks? Delilah shook her head. Now, in the games, we never really get to learn much about Henry, the creator of the animatronics, but in the novel trilogy, Silver Eyes, Twisted Ones, and Fourth Closet, we get to meet not only his daughter Charlie, but also some of his other creations, including, wouldn't you know it, a doll named Ella, who is built to serve tea. From the Silver Eyes novel, quote, out sailed Ella on her track, a child-sized doll bearing a teacup and saucer in her tiny hands like an offering, end quote. Now, across all three 
three novels, we never get a solid physical description of the Eladal. But in another book, The Freddy Files, which collects all the main information about the franchise, we do get to see our first illustration of the doll. And wouldn't you know it, everything matches the description of Delilah's little garage sale find from 1.35am. Quote again, wearing a puffy-sleeved 1980s-era bright blue full-skirted dress with pink ruffled trim and a big bow around the waist. End quote. It's the same doll, meaning that this first story is happening in the novel timeline after the events of Fourth Closet. Somehow this is the doll that Henry created for his daughter Charlie, who I need to technically remind you is his daughter because again remember his daughter died at a young age and he replaced her with a series of four robots that represent Charlie growing up at various ages so Ella technically is an early version of his own daughter figured I'd throw that little factoid in there since you know this is a real and totally valid plot point from the novelized series of events in this very easy to understand series but that's not all while I was reading the story the way Delilah decides to hide in the ventilation shaft felt really strange to me like why it was super random but also was one of those things that felt so oddly specific that it felt like it had to have had a bigger purpose so I dug around and found this for you for your consideration I present to you night two of sister location so funny story a dead body was found in this vent once okay so not that funny but it's a story. So, could Delilah be that body that was actually found in the vents of Circus Babies Entertainment and Rentals? Maybe, but probably more likely it's alluding to that story from Sister Location rather than directly the same one. You see, in the book we're told that Delilah's vent is in a site that's under construction, a three-story structure that feels a bit like an office building. Sister Location, meanwhile, takes place in an underground facility underneath a residential home, so it's probably not the same building. At the same time, though, the story makes it clear that Delilah was drawn to this place. Quote, the answer to her plight was in here. She was sure of it. Some place here, she was gonna find a way to escape Ella forever. End quote. Time and again throughout all of these Fazbear Fright stories, we're shown people being drawn to the Freddy Fazbear locations through some supernatural force. So could Delilah, or whoever died in the vents of sister location, have been compelled to come there? And this story is just giving us a hint as to how that happened. Maybe. And whereas the Delilah sister location connection might just be me reading too far into things, that certainly isn't true for our second story, Room for One More. In this story, and stop me if any of this sounds familiar, Stanley is a night guard at a mysterious underground facility full of little ballerina dolls looking to escape to the surface. Ding, ding, ding! It's like in one sentence we just won FNAF bingo. Each night he falls asleep on the job, wakes up to find a mini Rena doll on the desk asking to go home with him, Stanley falls asleep again, and when he wakes up, the doll is magically gone. Over the next few days, his his arms start to swell, his throat starts to bleed, and yet he keeps going to work, keeps finding dolls, and keeps falling asleep. Eventually, he learns that the dolls have been crawling into his mouth while he sleeps, causing his body to swell to the point of bursting. The end. The moral of this story, kiddos, be a good employee. Don't sleep on the job, otherwise little animatronic creatures are gonna crawl into you and make you explode from the inside out. What's also interesting about this story is Stanley's dreams. Each time he sleeps while on duty, he has himself a strange dream. In the first, Funtime Foxy is a cab driver. In the second, the facility's power cuts off and he comes face to face with Funtime Freddy. And in the last one, Ennard is a dentist and Ballora is his dental assistant, which I would say is one of the strangest things to ever appear in this franchise, 
but then again, I turn your attention to this corner where we have Time Traveling Ball Pit, Anime Foxy, Yandere Chica. Anyway, this one is pretty obvious, right? Stanley is working at Circus Babies Entertainment and Rentals, that underground facility from Sister Location, and the dolls crawling into his mouth are a parallel to Ennard using Michael's progressively decaying body as a skin suit in that game's secret ending. I think this story might be trying to give us a more realistic interpretation of those events, or something that more closely matches what we see happening in those ending cutscenes. That instead of Michael being scooped and having a skeleton removed and all of that at the same time, that our protagonist Michael instead is being slowly filled up with animatronic pieces night after night, giving him that progressively sickly look that scares all the people around him. Stanley's story even mentions this, quote, He staggered and stumbled down the sidewalk. Passers-by stared, some seeming worried, others just annoyed, like it inconvenienced them to see another person suffering. Which feels right on point with how those cutscenes were depicted in Sister Location. But okay, of the three stories in 1.35am, it's story number three, New Kid, that's the most exciting to talk about, at least for today's episode, because this one gets to the heart of what is still to this day the single biggest question of the series, and that is the identity of Golden Freddy. Let me tell you, I thought we had this one pretty well nailed down, that it was Cassidy, aka the vengeful <laughs> spirit from Ultimate Custom Night, and yet this story, well, it causes me to question a few things about our conclusions. First, let's go through a quick summary. Devin is a ninth grade social loner alongside his only friend Mick. One day, a new kid in school named Kelsey shows interest in spending time with the two of them. Kelsey is good looking, he's charismatic, he immediately attracts the attention of all the cool kids in school. And even though Kelsey, Devin, and Mick all get along as friends, eventually Devin gets jealous of Kelsey, because Kelsey has everything that Devin wants. And so to get some revenge, he lures him to an abandoned Freddy's restaurant long forgotten at the outskirts of the town. His plan is to trap Kelsey in a springlock suit for a few hours to scare him, but, well, you know what's gonna happen. The sheer mention of springlock suit immediately gives you a spoiler alert as to what's gonna go down. Kelsey puts on the Golden Freddy suit and gets skewered alive. Quote. The blood saturated the bear's matted fur in seconds and began pooling on the floor. Devin stared at the moving blood. It looked like it was a living thing. A thinking red liquid lake stretching out. End quote. Mick and Devin leave Kelsey for dead for fear of Devin getting in trouble, but they're not quite sure he actually died. Nearly a week later, Devin is convinced to go back and check on Kelsey, but when he does, he's in for a surprise. Kelsey has vanished. Devin eventually sticks his hand inside the suit's mouth to feel around for Kelsey's slumped over dead body, only for the spring locks to fail again and crush his arm. As Devin lies on the floor, trapped and slowly bleeding to death, he gets a final glimpse into the suit and, well, let's just say what he sees inside rocks the foundation of what we know about this franchise. Quote, Devin wiggled in one more attempt to free himself. The mouth opened even more and Devin got a sudden glimpse inside the suit. He gasped down low, past his arm, Devin could see a body, a dead body, just like he thought he'd find when he came back here to check. But it wasn't exactly like he thought he'd find. This one had curly black hair. The body in the suit wasn't Kelsey. Now, there's a lot of weird things about this story that I don't quite have answers for, but I do have some thoughts about. First and foremost is the ending. You see, the book doesn't end with Devin's death like you'd expect. It actually continues to a final scene 
with Kelsey, alive and well, as the new kid at school introducing himself to two boys. It seems, at a first reading, like this should be a flashback to when Kelsey first meets Mick and Devin at school. Like, ah, oh, this was the fateful meeting that would eventually lead to multiple of their deaths. But it's not. This is Kelsey at a new school meeting two new boys. In the story, Mick meets Kelsey first and then brings Kelsey over to meet Devin, and it all takes place in a classroom. This closing scene, meanwhile, is outside the front doors of a school, and the two boys Kelsey introduce himself to are less social outcasts like Mick and Devin, and more like bullies. We're expressly told that the boys are snickering at the passing kids. Even Kelsey's first line to them is different. It implies that Kelsey has somehow lived on after his supposed spring trap death in Golden Freddy, and now he's the new kid at yet another new school, introducing himself to two new kids. And the way that this final scene is written, with Kelsey scoping out the two boys from afar before he approaches them, it feels like he's actively targeting loner kids to make friends with. Could this be Kelsey's attempt to befriend kids that most overlook and then lure them back to a Freddy's pizzeria for some tragic incident to happen? It seems like it would be a stretch, but let's talk about Kelsey himself. Mr. Perfect. Kelsey is a weird entity in all this. Throughout the story, there are moments when his behavior is specifically called out as slightly off. Quote from the book, Kelsey tilted his head and studied Devin for a couple of seconds. For those two seconds, Devin had the weird feeling he was being evaluated. And again later, Devin was tempted to stab Kelsey to see if he was a robot. Kids don't say stuff like that. Once they're actually at the pizzeria, things go surprisingly smoothly for Devin's plan. The line in the book even goes like this, quote, This was going even better than he imagined. He thought he was going to have to talk Kelsey into trying on the Golden Freddy suit, but it looked like he was going to do it all on his own. It was like it was meant to be. All of it seems to cast some level of suspicion on Kelsey's true motivations. And that's without me even mentioning the fact that his body just goes was missing at the end of the book when it has been skewered and bled to death. To me, it feels like Kelsey may just be our vengeful spirit from Ultimate Custom Night. In the story, Kelsey is described as having wavy blonde hair and blue eyes. Now, we have a pretty solid idea that its hair is straight, with a slight wave, and it appears to be blonde. But here's the kicker. This image was created by inverting colors. It's what gives it that blown out and kind of creepy appearance. If you invert the colors of the vengeful spirit's eyes, you get blue, just like Kelsey is described in the book. And it would fit the idea of a vengeful spirit, a kid who is angry about his own death, perhaps in an accident like we see in FNAF 4, or in this particular story, looking to get revenge on other kids who are similar to his original killers. He goes from school to school, presumably ones near Fazbear locations, to somehow trick kids into getting killed by the suit. The parallels with vengeful spirit even go to the moments right around Kelsey's death in the book. This is how how it's described, and the sound wasn't the bad part. It was bad, yes, but the bad part, the really, really bad part, was the way the suit started jerking in a spastic, horrific dance. It looked like the moth-eaten, mildew-blotched gold bear was convulsing, but it wasn't the bear, it was Kelsey. It's remarkably similar to the final cutscene from Ultimate Custom Night, where we see again an angry Golden Freddy, presumably filled with the vengeful spirit, twitching off into the darkness. Also worth noting is that the Springlock suits are apparently big enough for kids to slump down into the body. Devin, when he initially can't find Kelsey's body inside the suit, decides to dig deeper down into it. Quote, had Kelsey somehow slid down into the suit? Was that his hair that Devin could see? This, to me, confirms what we see in FNAF 4's storage room cutscene. The strange tuft of hair that's coming out of the body of the suit. Back then, we weren't sure what this was trying to tell us, what that tuft of hair was meant to be. But now, I think we can safely conclude that it 
is indeed a child stuffed into that body, and that we're only seeing the top tuft of hair poking out. It would seem to imply that there was a victim before the bite of 1983, and that the crying child was somehow aware of at least one, if not multiple, of past victims shoved inside the suits. But all of this brings us to the obvious question of this story, the curly black hair at the bottom of the suit. Who's that? And honestly, I'm not sure. Cassidy, which is what we've been assuming to be Golden Freddy's name this entire time, does indeed have black hair, but it's always been described as long and straight. In the fourth closet, we physically see Cassidy, and she's described as this, quote, That's Cassidy, a girl with long black hair approached. And in the survival logbook, where we first learned of Cassidy's name, there's this girl who, again, has long black straight hair. And that's something worth pointing out. For as chaotic as the story in this franchise has been for all its iterations, names and hairstyles and colors of the victims seem to be fairly consistent. Susie is always associated with her dog. She has blonde hair with curls and blue eyes. Cassidy always appears to have straight black hair. Fritz always has freckles. The names and the faces of the surrounding characters may change, but the missing children all seem to be fairly consistent in both name and physical description, which is an important detail to keep track of moving forward. So could all of this mean that Vengeful Spirit and Cassidy are two separate entities? That two spirits might both be in possession of Golden Freddy? Or that Cassidy isn't really associated with Golden Freddy at all and is instead the identity of one of the other animatronics? Because in Fourth Closet, she technically wasn't the one who was associated with Golden Freddy. Honestly, I don't know. I need to actually review the evidence for this one and I encourage you to do the same. The last thing worth mentioning for all of us to chew on is the mysterious Slytherin that's heard throughout this story. While the boys are exploring the abandoned pizzeria, they hear something inexplicable in the walls. Quote, while they were in the bathroom, Devin was pretty sure he heard something slithering through the walls. He didn't say anything. From the way the other boys' faces paled, he knew they heard it too. They didn't mention it either. It's never mentioned again. Nothing ever comes of this strange little detail, but it's clearly important because more inexplicable strange sounds come from the Freddy torso after Kelsey dies. In a later quote, did you leave anything else? He tried to ignore the fact that the scuttling sound was coming from the bear suit. Now, this is after Kelsey has already stopped squirming and twitching. So again, we're left with some mysterious force moving around in the pizzeria creating these sorts of sounds. Is it Ennard? Is it the stitch rate? Is it something else? Like I said, lots to chew on with this particular book, but as you can tell, it's given us pretty explicit information about some of the biggest questions that this series has had. Now it's up to us, as always, to put all those pieces together. Now, admittedly, my first theory on the Fazbear Frights books briefly covered the Stitch Wraith, and uh, back then I assumed he was entered. The Wraith was described in that book as a mysterious figure wearing a black cloak and wearing a white mask with features drawn in thick black marker. The description specifically calls out his two eyes, one of which appears to be blacked out, a big toothy grin with blood around the mouth, and a limping or shambling walk. White mask, blacked out eye, shamble, shamble, shake, it seems like a slam dunk for Ennard. However, the epilogue for 1.35am threw that hypothesis out the window as it revealed just exactly how the Stitch Wraith was brought to life. A process that actually reveals a lot about how this series' mythos works. In this epilogue, we're introduced to Dr. Phineas Taggart, not to be confused with his friend Dr. Ferb Fletcher. Phineas is a bit of a mad scientist type, studying the untapped power of human emotion. As he says himself, quote, human emotion is slower to impact 
more insidious. It emanates from us, or is excreted from us like sweat or tears, and it wafts outward like a noxious cloud soaking into the surroundings. In particular, his research is centered around the intense emotion of agony. In order to study it, we see that Phineas collects hundreds of haunted objects to search for this emotion trapped inside. Again from the book, the word haunted could mean showing signs of torment or some kind of mental anguish. These items on Phineas's shelves weren't possessed by ghosts. The ones that were truly haunted were energized by agony. Agony, I'm convinced, radiates farther from people than any other emotion, Phineas said. My work is focused on my hypothesis that you can take a saturation of agony, add any sort of intelligence, even an artificial one, and they'll combine together to transmute the energy of emotion into the energy of physical action. This, I believe, is what explains what people call haunted objects. And already you might be starting to see how this all ties into what we already know about this franchise. In FNAF 6's Insanity Ending, we were introduced to the blueprints outlining how the sister location Scooper worked, and it was... well, it, it was not what we expected, to say the least. Through those blueprints, we learned about the mystery metal called Remnant, and its ability to supposedly give life to objects that it touches. The novel The Fourth Closet took it one step further and showed us the Remnant metal being created and used. In that story, we watch as William Afton melts down pieces of the old animatronics, creating a Remnant soup that he then uses to give life to new living robots, specifically the Funtime animatronics. Quote, On the heating table rested the endoskeletons of the original Freddy's animatronics, welded and melted together, immobile and featureless, and still inhabited by the spirits of the children who had been murdered inside of them so many years ago, still filled with life and motion and thought, all trapped, all in terrible pain. Usually this goes into something mechanical, something I made, William said. If we remember back to Candy Cadet's stories of five things always becoming one thing, five kittens getting sewn together, or five keys melted down into one, this is exactly what those stories were referring to. But Phineas's experiments in 1.35am actually take it one step further and give us more insight into the true nature of Remnant. Things that are brought to light via Remnant aren't necessarily infused with a soul, but instead with agony, with intense human emotion, with extreme human suffering. This is important because it means that characters like Balloon Boy, the Bitty Babs and the Mini Renas and Sister Location, heck, even animatronics like Mangle don't necessarily need to have actual victims associated with them. We used to look at solving the mysteries of this series as having it be one-to-one -one all the time. Susie equals Chica, Charlie equals the puppet, Cassidy equals Golden Freddy. But what we're starting to learn is that there are other ways to bring things to life in this series, that some animatronics may contain multiple souls, like we talked about last time with Golden Freddy, and some might not contain any souls at all, as long as it always ties back to some extreme tragedy filled with this all-powerful emotion of agony. So with that little analysis in place, let's go back to our story. We see Phineas collect objects associated with horrific tragedies, and via some means funnel all the agony from them down into an endoskeleton, which we're specifically told is meant to be a stand-in for bones, so we're talking like a FNAF 1 or FNAF 2 era endoskeleton here. Phineas then puts the head of a large three-foot doll on it, a doll whose description bears a shocking similarity to blank, actually, from the fan game Five Nights at Candy's, and finally a battery pack before turning this beast on. And not only does this modern Frankenstein come to life, it immediately kills its creator, Phineas, seemingly by accident, surprisingly, and then runs off, hiding under a black cloak. The Stitch Wraith has been born. 
But okay, why am I making such a big deal out of this thing? Why does this guy deserve his own episode? Well, because solving the Stitch Wraith story in these books is like a game unto itself. You see, there have been very subtle clues hidden throughout the nine other stories in this series that connect things back to the Stitch Wraith. My first clue was the battery pack Phineas uses to power the Stitch Wraith as he's building it. Because it's not just any battery pack. It came from Fetch, the murder animatronic dog from book two of the series. Quote, the item in the second box was an animatronic dog that clearly no longer functioned. The dog was an ugly dog, with a triangle-shaped head and a wide mouth full of sharp teeth. In minutes, he'd revealed the dog's battery pack. So immediately we know that the Stitch Wraith story is happening after the events of the Fetch story from book number two. So I dug around deeper and more connections kept coming. Earlier in this same book, in the title story 1.35am about the haunted Eladal, there's one line referencing a man named Phineas looking online for a particular toy. Quote again, one of the searches for special Ella doll led her to an online ad posted by a user named Phineas who was trying to find one of the dolls. His ad referenced the special Ella doll and said he was willing to pay a premium for the doll's energy. Overall, across the nine stories published so far, seven seem to tie back to the Stitch Wraith, allowing us to create a rough timeline of events. So bear with me as we go through this. We know that 1.35 a.m. and Fetch must come first because Phineas is alive and looking for the Ella doll like I just mentioned, and the evil robot dog has just started his murder spree. From there comes the story we just covered, Epilogue 3 and the Stitch Wraith's creation. After that, he begins to roam the city collecting body parts for some purpose. You may remember book number one story to be beautiful, in which Baby hacks apart a human girl named Sarah in order to steal her identity. Sarah is rebuilt out of junk only for her to fall to pieces at the end. Well, in epilogue number one, we hear that the Stitch Wraith was seen collecting those junk pieces of Sarah. Odd, right? And it's not the only time that it happens either. In book number two, there's the story out of stock about a group of friends who steal a defective plush trap doll, one with oddly human-like eyes and teeth, only for it to go on a rampage. The boys manage to escape by luring it in front of an oncoming train where it gets shattered to pieces. And again, in epilogue number two, we see the Stitch Wraith on the scene salvaging whatever he can find of the broken box. And that's where it would seem to end if it weren't for one other small detail. You see, in one of the other stories in this book, Room for One More about a security guard being force-fed mini Rena dolls in the basement of Circus Babies Entertainment and Rentals, there's a passing reference to a restaurant called The Snack Space. Hey man, I was picking up a takeout order at Luigi's the other night and saw your ex on a date with the manager of The Snack Space. Seems... Super unimportant, right? Well, it would be if this was the only time that it was mentioned, but it's popped up in one of the other stories. In Into the Pit, the very first story, the one about the time-traveling ball pit, the snack space is where the protagonist's father works, which means that Circus Baby's Entertainment and Rentals' sister location is also in that world, which in turn connects it to one final story, Count the Ways, where we see an old, broken, funtime Freddy planning to execute a girl trapped inside of his stomach. And while these aren't necessarily directly tied to the Stitch Wraith, it certainly feels like at some point all of these stories will come together, as though we're working on chunks of a larger puzzle. We've got a big chunk over here that's the Stitch Wraith connections, and a big chunk over here that's all connected through Sister Location and the Snack Space, and then you have a few other random pieces over here, and by the end I expect all of them will come together. So assuming that they are all connected, the timeline seems to go about like this. Lonely Freddy 
Freddy. The story about the kids getting mind swapped with mini Freddy dolls has to be first because it's the only one of these stories so far where Fazbear locations are open and ready for business. At some point, Freddy Fazbear's closes, leading to room for one more about the underground facility filled with mini arenas hoping to escape, which would parallel what we hear in Sister Location. Due to the massive success, and even more so the unfortunate closing of Freddy Fazbear's Pizza, it was clear that the stage was set, no pun intended, for another contender in children's entertainment. At some point, Baby and the mini arenas escape from that underground facility, leading to 1.35am with Phineas looking for the haunted doll and Greg activating the murder dog in an abandoned Freddy Fazbear's in Fetch. From there, the next major moment is Stitch Wraith's creation in Epilogue 3, which then leads to his quest for body parts in To Be Beautiful Epilogue 1 and Out of Stock Epilogue 2. We also know that Into the Pit and The New Kid happen near the end of the timeline since they both feature a closed down, forgotten, or repurposed Freddy's building. Also, there's Count the Ways, which is towards the end of this timeline grouped with these other stories since a retired Funtime Freddy is just randomly sitting in a garage killing kids. What does all of this tell us? What was the purpose of doing all this work? Well, first, all of this seems to connect us pretty solidly into the book trilogy. The fact that we have an Ella doll infused with agony that Phineas wants his hands on perfectly matches the Ella doll that Henry made for his daughter Charlie. To quote from the fourth closet, agony erupted, flooding the room with its sound. A man lay curled on the floor, something cradled tightly in his arms, and when his mouth opened, the room shook with the sound of his anguish. Who is that? Charlie said anxiously. What is he holding? You don't recognize her? Elizabeth said. That's Ella, of course. It's all your father had left after you were taken. He cried over that cheap store-bought rag doll for two months, cried into it, bled into it, poured his grief over it. End quote. At which point, he makes the robotic Ella doll that we talked about in the last episode. So what we're seeing in these stories appears to be, at least to some extent, the aftermath of that trilogy of books. Which also means that we might already know the true identity of the Stitch Wraith. It's a bit of a long shot, but it's my personal headcanon until proven otherwise. I think that the endoskeleton that powers the Stitch Wraith, the main body that's become the conduit for all of this agony, is the same endoskeleton that killed Henry. The robot that he used to end his own life. The stabbing robot, which, let's be honest, is like the most complicated way to do that sort of thing. Like, build a robot to stab you to death? What? Creative types, man, they are weird. Anyway, we're told in the Silver Eyes that it's a basic Gen 1 endoskeleton with an unfinished face. Which would explain exactly why Phineas needs to put a head on it. Quote from the Silver Eyes, she could see its face. If it could be called a face, its features were scarcely formed, crude and shapeless. Its blind eyes were only raised bumps like the eyes of a statue, seeing nothing but its own grief. We also know that this endoskeleton would be absolutely filled to the brim with agony. I mean, as far as endoskeletons go, a murder bot built by a grieving father is a pretty huge deal. And it's apparently an important enough character to this franchise to have also appeared at the end of the book trilogy. When Charlie is being attacked by Baby, it's this same murder bot and its trusty knife that Charlie uses to do them both in. I have a very, very strong theorist instinct that the Stitch Wraith will, at some point during this book series, be revealed to be connected back to Henry and his bizarre death. Just saying, the pieces are in place for us. <laughs> Oh yeah, and assuming that the Fazbear Fright series is connected a bit closer to the book trilogy, like it appears to be, we know that book five, Bunny Call, features a story about a man with gruesome burns over his body and an iron will to live. I mean, we already suspected that that was William Afton, but going back to see how his story ended in the fourth closet, we see that his death is far 
from certain. In his final moments, his hospital gown catches fire and he's pulled into a massive furnace. But then, nothing. No official confirmation that that burning actually kills him. Therefore, a burned man in a hospital who refuses to die sounds like a certain yellow bunny we all know who always comes back. Do me a favor, remember, it's just a theory. A game theory. Thanks for watching.